I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work get seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are wrapping up our last mini-series of the year, Representation Matters with Cheryl Bedford of Women of Color Unite. Before we dive in, we do want to plug that we have a free monthly newsletter, which you can find at the bottom of breakingoutpod.com. So if you're looking to get a little more content from us and a little creative inspiration, definitely go check that out. But without further ado, Cheryl, welcome. Hey, how are you? We're doing good. And we're so delighted that you're here. So uh, for those people who bizarrely don't know who you are, could you introduce yourself and what you make? <laughs> people actually don't know who no, I'm uh, so so I am the founder of Women of Color Unite the creator of the JTC list actually the JTC list came first it is a database of women of color above and below the line it is named after my mother who was an activist and statistician who passed away in uh, February 2016 her name was Joan Teresa Curtis hence the JTC list that started first and then we ended up becoming a nonprofit. And now we're the largest nonprofit of women of color in entertainment in four and a half years. Woohoo! Yeah. Shout out to us. Oh my gosh, that's congratulations. Yeah, that's that's amazing. amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I should also mention that I am a producer, a line producer by trade. Uh, most people know me from the award-winning documentary Dark Girls about colorism. I was Bill Duke's producer for six years. So shout out to my mm -hmm. Papa Duke. That's awesome. So yeah, let's let's start there then. Let's start with with you and your journey in the film world and coming up through it. So did you go to film school? Did you always know you wanted to work in the movies or was that a, a later thing? Uh, no, I've always known what I wanted to do. When I was eight years old, my mother took me to see A Little Night Music on Broadway. And I saw Glennis John sing Send in the Clowns. And I turned to my mother and I said, that's what I want to do. And what I meant by that was the mm. feeling, the collective, like in a song, this entire audience, she took us on a journey. I was, I said, that, that's what I, that's what I want to do. And I, so I've always known that I wanted to be in entertainment and my mother and my family have been extremely supportive. And a lot of people hear me talk about my mother. My parents were separated by the time I was a couple months old and my mother never remarried. So I'm an only <laughs> child. Haha, <laughs> I like to get my way. And, <laughs> but, uh, but I was actually very, very close to the Bedford side of my family uh, because my father ended up actually leaving Baltimore for a very, very long time. So like I grew up with all my cousins on both sides and so forth and so on. But the definitely the biggest influence in my life was my mom. And uh, obviously, I mean, I named an entire movement after her. Um, so I've always known what I wanted to do. My family was, like I said, extremely supportive. Being in the arts wasn't, it wasn't odd for my family. So my, so a little backstory, my uncle Thomas, who is the oldest, is a retired judge in Baltimore, Maryland, and helped to pass the Americans with Disabilities wow. Act. His youngest son, my cousin, is disabled. My aunt Janice was just appointed as Maryland State Griot. For those who don't know, it's an African storyteller. So she is Maryland State Griot now. Uh, she would just got that appointment within the last couple of weeks. She fit, um, just finished her tenure as the president of the National Association of Black Storytellers. And my mother's youngest sister, Mary C. Curtis, is an extremely well-known journalist. So I, it's not like my, when I said I, I wanted to be in the, 
film that my family was like, <laughs> okay. Uh, so I never had, seriously. So I never had that moment of, no, you should get something more, you know, steady, blah, What's blah, blah. What's your backup plan? Exactly. So, and, and it's funny that you should say that. So I, I always knew what my backup plan was going to be. I was going to mm-hmm. teach it. Like I, sure. I, I always knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And that I would one day teach, which I ended up doing. For me, I always had the support of my family. Now, let, let, let's, let's, get, let's get into the representation part. So uh, we're about, I'm about, I date myself. Like I tell my weight, I tell my age, like I don't give a shit about any of that kind of stuff. I always tell people I turned 40, my give a damn was busted. I turned 50 and I'm still looking for the fucks I'm supposed to give. So let's dive into it. So I went to New York University Tisch School of the Arts from 1984 to 1988. When I went to NYU, it was the number one film school in the country. Then I went to the American Film Institute from 1990 to 1993. It was 2023, I think, when I entered. Uh, The average age was 32. When I graduated in 1993, I believe that there were less than 200 people in the entire world with a master's degree from the American Film Institute. Because that was when we were part of the National Endowment for the Arts. So there were only, they only took back uh, because you went your first year and then you had to be asked back which they still have, but because, you know, they no longer get that funding. They take back many, many more. Back then, they only took up to eight people in each discipline, except for screenwriters. But I'm specifically talking about production. So think about that. Just eight people at the most. So, yes, there were less than about 200 people, I think, in in the entire world with a master's degree from the American Film Institute. When I went to AFI, it was the number one film school in the country. And right now, currently, NYU is number one, AFI is number two. This is very important because when I graduated from the American Film Institute in producing, had a ma- my master's is in producing, I could not get mm. a job. Mm. Uh, I watched all my white counterparts get jobs. So here's the interesting, pre-internet, well, shouldn't say proof but it was before sure. people were putting up like resumes and their pictures right. so you were sending out my resume you know licking that stamp sending it off and then when I would get a job interview nobody expected this black face to walk in right my name is you know my name is Cheryl L. Bedford people didn't expect everybody expected this white girl to walk in I don't think I think I got one interview, uh, even when they called me up and I walked in, because what would happen is they would stop me and say, oh, we think you'd be great for this diversity program, because let us not be mistaken, DEI has been around for 30, 40 years. Let's let's get this shit. Let's mm-hmm. let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I read it. Um, yeah. And I'm talking to you, Disney. I'm talking I'm talking about all of them. But it was really I, I, I it was the Disney one that really set me off because when I read the diversity form you have to fill out, right? What they really wanted was, oh, Poe Black me. Now, if that is your story, that's great. That's not mine. I'm just a middle-class Black girl from Baltimore, right? I've gone to private school my entire life, except for kindergarten. I went to public school, but we were, uh, I'm Catholic. I went to Catholic school for 12 years of my life. So this idea that you want it and it 
so let's also, my mother was an activist. So my mother was very much like, oh, so they want to break their arm patting themselves on the back. And I ripped it up. I'll never forget. I ripped it up. And I swore to myself, if I could ever change this industry, <laughs> how do you like me now? Anyway, so uh, I literally watched all of these people I went to school with who didn't necessarily have both NYU and ASI. Right. Mm -hmm. I watched them just work their way the fuck on up. And I watched them take all marginalized people and shove them into a pool. Fight club. Fight for these 25 spots. Here's the thing. You're never, ever, ever going to make me fight other marginalized people for your bullshit. Ever. That shit is never going to happen. This is not fight club. Okay. So... I became an independent producer. I'm not going to say it was not a tough road at all as far as like making money, going from production to production. There's just one thing because I am a producer. I don't believe in living above my means. It was difficult, but it wasn't. How can I put this? I, it, it was difficult, but maybe I don't see it as being quite as difficult as maybe it was. So I always talk about the fact that my mother was a, an activist and a statistician. So my mother also moved out here, became a caterer. So I worked for my mother in between shoots and I would get her jobs and she would get me jobs. See, mm, that's why I love my mom. <laughs> and so it ended up, you know, it, it worked out. It, it worked out. I also ended up teaching because remember BFA and MFA. So I taught at New York uh, film Academy. I became their very first chair of diversity development. I taught the art of line producing at UCLA Extension. So I ended up also teaching. Uh, it, 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 I, I made it happen. And I played by nobody's rules, but my own. It is a tough road, but ultimately it has been a happy one. It has really been a happy one. So that really is my story. And I, I've ended up like, I talk about like, I think it's 17 feature films that I production manager, line produce, produce somewhere in that. I, there actually have been more, but they still live on people's shelves. I don't think they've ever gotten made. And then there's some that just trash that I took the paycheck for. And I don't talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's that. And then I was also a film festival judge. The very first it was the very first year that maybe it was second year that I was a film festival judge. And shout out to Nima Barnett, uh, one of the first Black female directors for television. Nima was my mentor. Someone had asked her to judge uh, the Pan-African Film Festival. And she couldn't because she was working on something. And she said, uh, hit up Cheryl. And I did. And it was at one of the Pan-African Film Festivals where I met Bill Duke. And Bill and I hit it off. And then I ended up being his producer for years. We're still, like I said, I call him my Papa Duke. I still help him out every now and then. He'll call me and go, hey, can you pop off a budget <laughs> for me? And I'm just like, how much money you got? And he's like, oh, I <laughs> uh, he's still, He's still my Papa Duke. And I will say it was really good for me to have both of them as my mentors, which obviously led to one of the reasons we do start, yeah. you know, hashtag start with eight, our mentoring oh, program. Yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And it one of the reasons that it, it is so important is because I was lucky enough to have Nima Barnett, a Black woman, who helped me navigate some shit. 
back in my career. And then to have Bill, Bill Duke, a dark skin, because, you know, colorism is a big thing in Hollywood. So to have him, yeah, like that, that, that was really, really important. And then, of course, uh, I ended up doing Dark Girls with Bill. And Dee Chansonberry was the other director for it. And it was, it was, it, it, we went viral. Uh, so what happened was we sent out this nine, 10 minute clip and you can still find it on YouTube. And we were just sending it out to people in the industry and woke up to 40,000 wow. views. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We woke up to 40,000 views. I started getting calls from members of my family. We're like, I just saw this clip. Like, this is amazing. Cameron Bailey, who's now in charge of TIFF, back then he was program director, saw it and hit us up. And he's like, I, 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 I want this. He's like, I want this. Interestingly, it was a not, we weren't finished shooting. We weren't finished editing. They were kind enough to program us in the second half of TIFF. Uh, the film arrived two days before oh, wow. we wow. showed it. And we, at the screening at TIFF, there were so many people because it was a conversation that needed to be had. And there were so many people who wanted to talk about the issue of colorism that the Q&A lasted into the next film where everybody came out and sat down in the lobby. Bill and Chan were on the steps going up to where the balcony was, sold out. Everybody had it. And we could not sell that movie. Could huh. not sell it. So they took it on the road. They took it on a road and proved that they could sell it out. And then Own ended up picking up Dark Girls. And when it premiered, it was the number one trending topic. But none of the white distributors, had t I had conversations. I was there. I was going to ask. Like, yeah, yeah, but it's a, it's a niche film. It's the, you know, it won't do well overseas. Interestingly, to this day, it's been 10 years, 11 years. To this day, we still get people who hit us up to, to show it in classrooms, high school and college around the world. So to all the white distributors who wouldn't uh, pick it up. Mm, mm, They're mm, lost, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So Cheryl, really quickly, um, because that, that reminds me of something you said uh, early on in your, in your story about the diversity programs at like Disney and places like that. So can you clarify for listeners what it meant when your white classmates were going up for just jobs and then they gave you a different like application? Like, was it a different job? What, like what in their minds was the diversity initiative that you were so lucky to be offered? Yeah. So as opposed to an interview, mm -hmm. what they handed me was one of these application forms for one of their diversity initiatives, whatever one was going on at the time uh, to get marginalized people in the blah, 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 blah. But remember, so even to this day, when they have something that's like 20, 25 spots, do you know over five thousand people mm -hmm. apply? Because first of all, it's not just necessarily for black people. It's for black people, Latinx, indigenous, disabled, women, all women, mm -hmm. veterans. Like it, it's, they yep. pile everybody in here like yep. fight where you will find, or, or even people who identify in the LGBTQIA plus community, right? And then you have white, cisgender, straight white men who just, you know, go in for the interview and get the, get the job. Like I, I, here's the thing. And I tell people this all the time. I will put my credentials up against mm, 
any VP, SVP, EVP, even president. Of, of stu- I'm not just talking like production companies. I'm talking about studios. You don't know more than me. You don't. You don't. You are no less talented. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, you are a lot less talented. Let's call a spade a spade. Right. So even when I go into meetings with studios and so forth and so on, I never walk into them like I'm there on a humble. I'm not the person who's going to say, oh, thank you very much for seeing me. I walk in with the attitude of the only reason you're on that side of the table and I'm on this one is because this is the intersectionality of systemic racism and sexism. Let us not even take into consideration when I graduated, I was very young. When I graduated, I was fat. When I, and I am dark skinned. When you look at all of those things, when you look at that intersectionality, no, nobody, nobody wanted to just hire me right off the bat. Mm-mm. Even give me an interview. And I'm like, you do realize that getting into these schools what what was not easy at all and usually i was the only black person one of a couple of black people so please don't tell me i got in cuz of some diversity blah, 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 blah. nah cuz there would have been a lot more of us i'm just saying right but yes I, at NYU so I, I w- I've always been very intentional even as a kid so my kindergarten teacher told my mother don't put pressure on Cheryl she puts enough on herself my kindergarten <laughs> teacher told her because <laughs> in kindergarten you know how you get like ones mm-hmm. twos and threes if for everything for everything like hanging up your code if you're gonna so here's the funniest thing I got 27 ones and three twos and pitch a fit because I got three two this is not a like I I that person my kindergarten teacher was "Mm, please please don't 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 put any pressure on Cheryl she puts enough on herself I I went to you know my high school is one of the number one high schools in the country like all all of that right and so I I, I, I'll match I'll match it I'll match I'll match it all up against anybody anytime any day any place anywhere right so I, I, I'm going to tell you a story and I, I name names. So, you know, um, anybody it. else. Uh, and here's the funniest thing. No, no, I do it all the time. Like there are articles, other podcasts. It's, this isn't something that, you know, is exclusive. We're not getting the scoop. Like, talk about yes. this. Darn. Yeah, not really. So <laughs> uh, when Nithya Raman was head of Times Up Entertainment, uh, and I actually wrote an article. <laughs> it actually was, uh, I'm a woman of color and here's why I won't vote for her and it's interesting because she's the council person now whoops <laughs> but anyway because uh, they switched districts and I'm like Ooh, lordy. <laughs> uh you know but I stand by this and here's why when she was head of t- t- Time's Up Entertainment she and I met we lived you know relatively close to each other and uh we met and she was talking about a program that, which was one of those uh, sort of helping assistants move up, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, another one of those. And I said to her, that's great. How about everybody who's been in this a hot minute who, who can't level up? Because do not get it mistaken. When you hit intersectionality, it is not a glass ceiling. It's a fucking concrete one. So I said to her, 
well, what about like all those people been in your industry 10, 15, ah, 20 years like myself? Like, what about all of them? And she said, oh, Cheryl, I had that conversation with heads of studios, production companies. She said, because a hand full of you have made it, she, they just think the rest of you aren't good enough. Now, I had a visceral reaction to that. I said, this is a quote, tell them to say that to my motherfucking face. I said, okay, but if you look at all of the black people a lot, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about black people, but we can look at, we can look at brown, we can look at indigenous, we can look at Asian, we can look at, I said, first of all, they got a colorism problem, right? The proximity to whiteness. Tell me somebody else who's fat. Tell me somebody who has a disability. Tell, t- 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 what are we doing here? I said, and here is the problem with you going ahead with that program. You're signing off on their bullshit. You know it's bullshit. And yet, just to do this program and look like you're doing some shit, you're signing off on it. Like you're signing off on it. You're saying it is okay. You and I both know it's a goddamn lie. You and I both know that what you are doing is letting them get away with it, right? Because if you go ahead and you take their money for some pipeline initiative, knowing that there are all of these other people out there, but you're going to take their money, then basically you're making a deal with the devil because what you're not doing is holding their feet to the fire and go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait one second. We know that they are good. We know that there are a shit ton of black and brown and indigenous and, and people with disabilities. We know that they're actually out there. They could have created a program for that, right? Even I see uh, diverse representation. They do one for executives and so forth and so on. Here's the problem. And it's not their problem. It only has six, six goddamn people, thousands mm-hmm. apply, yeah. six. Stop it. Just hire us. Just hire us. I saw, and you can see my tweet. Tyler Perry was at TIFF and he's like, oh, we have yeah. to uh, oh, educate people <laughs> and so forth and so on. You saw my tweet, knock mm-hmm. it off. Stop it. Do you know that 44% of women of color leave this industry after 10 goddamn years because they can't level up? 10 years experience, 44%. Here's what I hate. I hate when, when people, when other BIPOC people buy into talk, white supremacist talking points. I, that, that annoys me to know. And how about this? How about you keep quiet until you find out the truth? How about that? How about you not think just because you made it that there aren't people out there who aren't equally as qualified, who make your black men, black women, black women with disabilities, like my friend and one of our disabled advocates, Diana Elizabeth Jordan, who by far is the dopest actress I know. She also has multiple sclerosis. Diana should have had her own show 15, 20 goddamn years ago, right? So, because we know that intersectionality of white supremacy, we do not call it white privilege because it's a privilege to be raised by a black woman. Yes, I said it. It is really the power of whiteness. That intersection, the more marginalized you are, the more perfect you expect, you, people expect, 
expect you to be. But here's the thing. I got a BFA from NYU, TSOA, and an MFA from AFI. I got credentials above credentials. So please, don't tell me that I'm not good enough because I'm going to call you on your bullshit. And I do every goddamn day. You can't, you're not, mm -mm, I don't buy it. I don't buy it because here's the thing that my mother taught me as an activist. I don't wait for somebody else to deem me worthy. I don't wait for somebody else to pat me on the head. Like that, that's not it. I know my work. I know my work. And my mother is who paid for all of this. She's like, yeah, nobody ever is going to tell you any goddamn thing. I, I, I don't, I don't believe in waiting for somebody else to deem me worthy. So yeah, I talk my shit all, all day long. I call out people. I, I have more sensitive conversations behind the scenes because I get it. Like uh, I, I understand it. But things that, that are out like in the public, so forth and so on, like my tweet, like the article I wrote. Because here's the thing, I'm never going to trust you if you let white people get away with some shit that's harming us. Dr. Coastal was saying he runs our DEIAB program and now it's diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging. And here's the thing, I always get people who are smarter than me, always, to run some shit. Akosua says Hollywood will never be able to make up for the damage it has done to black and brown kids ever. I would add disability, indigenous, like they're never going to make it up. Do you know the uh, dark skinned women from per the study from the National Institute of Health suffer from depression 30 percent more than brown skin or light skinned black women? And there in that link, that 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 study is directly linked to media. There is a direct correlation. And here's the thing. Just like I have read it, please don't tell me that you don't know any better. We know that the industry knows better because they leave $10 billion on the table when it comes to Black content. So here's the thing. White Trump screen. White Trump screen. In the state of California, when a company is run by a woman of color, profits go up by as much as 30%. So why aren't more women of color running companies? Because white Trump's green. Don't ever try to think that, oh, well, we're going to do this. Or we're, we're trying. Mm -mm, there's nothing to do. That, that trying to hire some motherfuckers. Just hire them. They're out there. They're more than qualified. And here's the thing. They can run circles around you and actually give you 30% more in profits. But wait, you're not, you're, you're not hiring them? Oh, okay. Then there's only one thing left. Whiteness. Yeah, I mean. I'm, I'm, with, with how much this is just a machine that's like so hard to combat, how do you stay motivated in everything that you're doing? Ooh. When we did the first round of Start With Eight, uh, and, then, and I have also, I knew it, but even though we ha I have feelings about it, my mother always said, as a statistician, break things down to the lowest common denominator. So I knew this, but then it was proven statistically. So after the first round of Hashtag Start With Eight, because it was a Twitter movement that then became an actual program, we asked people, how, how could we do better, right? Like, what did you get from it? How could we do better? So forth and so on. Without prompting, over 70% of women of color who responded said what we gave them most was hope. That is why I do what I do. It's hope. It's, it's hope. It's interesting because I, it, and I'm not going to say it doesn't get difficult. So I said, Effie, 
a, I've, I've known her like 15, 20 years, a, an email. Because, you know, she's now she's CEO of Game Changer. They had a film that was opening a section of TIFF. Like, it was a big deal. And I sent her an email because she's talked about it publicly that she couldn't get work for two years after mm-hmm. the incident with Project Greenlight, right? And calling out stuff. I haven't been able to get hired as a line producer. And so I sent her an email and I said, you give me hope. You give me hope, right? That one day this shit's going to change. One day it's going to give just a little bit. One day we're going to have the ability on a larger scale to be able to change things. She gives me hope. Thank God she's a friend, but she gives me hope. And that's why I do what I do. And don't get me wrong. It's difficult. It is so hard. But then I get posts and emails. And Diana Romero wrote something on Facebook. Another member of mine, Tiffany Rodriguez, sent me something. In the last week, I have had multiple emails because we just finished matching the last round. So a lot of our women have now met their mentors and how people are getting hired, projects funded, content distributed, how just these thank you, thank you, thank you. You have changed my life. Here's the thing. The way Women of Color Unite started the JTC list, send you a link to the video that uh, Mallory Lovings did of our first event. And I say in it at the very end, if one woman and her credit card and her tax return can change this industry, so can you. And I stick by that four and a half years later. I didn't do anything that no one else could do. I really didn't. I do think that there was a part of me that I was born to do this. Like I'm a filmmaker and and I'm also, my mother was an activist and you combine all of that and you shake it up. And what you get is the founder of Women of Color Unite and the creator of the JTC list, right? But when I look at it practically, I didn't do anything. I just got everybody in the same room. That's all I did. People ask us how... why the JTC list is so successful. I mean, the last year alone, we sent it out to over 300 people, right? Can't find it. You have to request it. It's for two specific reasons. Number one, to keep people's information private, so forth and so on. There have been people who have gotten it under false pretenses and you have watched me light them up like the motherfucking 4th of July on Twitter. I have sent my attorney after them. Don't ever do that motherfucking shit again, okay? So, and now I lost my train of thought. What was the second reason why it's private? Oh, the second reason is so that I can keep uh, track. So like, you know, um, and I'm picking on Disney today, but whatever. So if somebody comes out like, we're doing this program because we can't find any. I'm like, really? Because this is what I do behind the scenes. Um, They will get an email. The person who got the list right? They will get an email. And it's like, yeah, so I see you say you can't do da, 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 but I sent this to you, woke you, da, 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 da. what are you talking about? What kind of bullshit are you doing? Because here's the other thing, it's performative. That's number one. Uh, and, then, and sometimes it's a cash grab. It's a cash grab. 
within the nonprofit world. Because women and girls of color run nonprofits only receive 0.5% of all grant and foundation money. 0.5%. Yet, we are expected to do much, much more than our well-founded counterparts. And we do. So I will put, I will match what Women of Color Unite has been able to do with women in film anytime, anyplace, any day, anywhere. They've been around, what, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. like that. They charge, they, they charge yeah. their membership. Didn't meet to when all this kind of stuff happened on their watch. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. They have a brick and mortar. Wait, yeah. they have a brick and mortar. They get to pay people, so forth and so on. My entire staff are volunteers. Sure, if I get in a small grant, I took, we took out an SBA loan. While I, I try to pay people. But for the most part, nobody gets paid. Not a regular salary. Nobody has health benefits, so forth and so on. Yet in two years, we've been able to get over 2,000 women of color, met two mentors each in three countries. So, yes. So if it really is about metrics, if it really is a meritocracy, I want all DEI money. I want it all. Because if you as a studio can't do better than that, why the fuck do you still have your goddamn job? Why? Like, why? Oh, so that's right. So all the companies can put a little black marker on their like that black square for Black Lives Matter or do hashtag stop Asian hate or whatever it is. That's why you're doing it, right? Because in actuality, what you've been able to do and what what you has been able to do in the little time that we, there's no fucking comparison, none. So, and and, and I call shit out, like even regarding like DEIA, I'm like, how how much is your salary? Because here's my question. And I've said this on multiple occasions. I get the fact that a lot of these people within diversity, equity, include blah, blah, blah. And, and for them, I say blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, like, I, I, I think that a lot of people join because they really wanted to do something. I do. I, I do in my heart of hearts. But I got a question. When did you put um, whiteness over your own people? When did you be, decide that working within this white supremacist system was better than that because I do know people who have quit and started their own firms and so forth and so on. Like I, I, I know people. So for the people who are still there, except I do under also understand the way that white supremacy works. It dangles this carrot, right? And the carrot is you put whiteness ahead of all the marginalized people, your own people, so forth and so on. And we may give you the corner off you may even get that six, let alone seven figure job. But then you look at the flip side of it, which is if you don't, you could be fired, you could be blackballed, or even worse, you could die. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that, that that's what white supremacy does. It holds out hope that you could get this. But then you look so for people who take that live that run after that little dangling carrot, I get it. I get it. As somebody who's been doxxed, gotten death threats, I get it. I do. But again, as a person who's been doxxed and gotten death threats, I see you. So my mother used to say, in this house, we understand the way that white supremacy is internalized. So we forgive those people. She said, now, 
It doesn't mean you want to fuck with them, though, right? Because they're, I, I don't trust you. Yeah, I think there's there's a in in all conversations about representation matters that we have. There's always this sort of weird balancing act when it's like, is working from the inside out even possible? Let alone, is it the ethical path? And I think that probably never. Would you agree that that you know? fighting from the inside is, is often impossible just because of what you have to do to get inside? That is a hard mm-hmm. one because I really do understand it. Like I get it. Uh, and I don't, it, it, let's be very clear. I don't know what would have happened if I had gotten into the system. Sure. Yeah. I look at my career and I look at jobs that I've quit I look at times I've called out sexism. I've looked at times I've called out racism. And I'm like, but yeah, I probably would have, right? Like I probably, I look at why I quit my job at New York Film Academy. So I am that person. Like I, I believe in being happy, like my spirit, I, I really do. So I'm not, I'm not that person because as much as I loved what I do as far as filmmaking I have other interests this push comes to shove I'll go get another job it's not it's not worth it to me and I've I've told this story before when during the civil rights movement so my I've mentioned my mother my uncle my uncle Thomas there was also my uncle Tony he passed away before my mother did so it was my uncle Thomas was the oldest then my uncle Tony my mom my Janice my my mayor right and so the three oldest were old enough to march and 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 performance sit-ins and all of that. So their civil rights group would actually meet in my grandparents' house. So my uncle Thomas, my uncle Tony were actually arrested. And my grandparents put up the deed to their house to get them out. My grandparents put up the deed to their house. Huh? I can't, I I I can't. Like I can't. Like I I I I, I gotta call it out. I I I have to. My grandparents put up the deed to their house. They had five kids. They were sending them to private school, uh, well, Catholic school. They all took dance. All the girls took dance lessons. Everybody took piano lessons. Like my 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 grandparents put up the deed to their house. I can't. I I can't. I can't go along to get along. I can't. It, I I find I think that that would be hella disrespectful. And I am sure that there is somewhere deep down in my spirit. That when I see people who are doing that, I look at them and I think to myself, my grandparents put up the deed to their house. I can't, which is why, Bree, you know me, I'm normally off in my corner doing my own thing. I always tell people this. Uh, there is a scene at the end of the original Poseidon Adventure. I think it's Gene Hackman. He's trying to open up that last hatch. And he's a minister. And he says, God, you don't have to work with me. Just don't work against me. That's why normally why I'm off in my own corner. You don't have to support us because no, very few people do. We don't get the kind of grants and, and money that we should. We don't even get a lot of the local, federal, state. Like we don't get any of that. Okay, so I go off in my corner and I do what I need to do. Is what they don't count on is sweat equity of women of color and our co-conspirators, right? But here's the thing: don't make me come out of my corner. Don't work against me. Don't do it. You don't have to work for, don't make me come out of my corner. And what I mean by that is I, 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 
I will have no choice but to call you out. Just leave me the fuck alone. Right? Just, just, just leave me alone. Just let me do my thing, so forth and so on. I'll do podcasts. I'll talk about uh, the the disparity in nonprofit. I, I I'll, I'll talk about incidences that are very public. Like I'll, I'll do all of that, but don't work against me. The other thing is that that's just not good for my mental health. So recently, now this is kind of a spook. So recently we were talking to, it's GEI, um, it was Ryan Reynolds' company, their initiative, but they combined that with Project Evolve, which was the city of Los Angeles's, right? Mm-hmm. But, I, but they're still getting my tax dollars. Now I live in Los Angeles, so they're still getting my tax dollars for this initiative that this white man started. As opposed to the fact that Ryan Reynolds could have partnered with me. And how do I know this? Because before that, their company reached out to pick my motherfucking brain <sighs> with, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be mentors for you. We'll do this. And did none of it. Yeah, I'm, ca- I'm talking to you, maximum effort. Yes. Picked my motherfucking brain. I got the emails. Right? Okay, great. Now you're ignoring us. Didn't sign on to be mentors. None of the shit that you said that you would do for picking my motherfucking brain. Because we were the first group to talk about the union problem, right? Okay. They go off, they do their thing. City of Los Angeles. They're partnering with all the usual people. Fine. Okay. I get it. Project Evolve. But then Project Evolve combines with that company. But they're still getting tax dollars. They're getting my tax dollars when I'm not getting it. Londi Maduro and Women of Color Filmmakers isn't getting it. Kate Phoenix and Chicana Directors Initiative isn't getting it. Kimberly Batista and Justice for My Sister Collective isn't getting it. Wait, but our tax dollars are going to help. When I found that out, that hurt. Now that hurt someplace that I wasn't expecting. This is about a month ago. Because we had a meeting with one of the young women uh, at this combined initiative. I lost my mind. That, that, you don't have to work for me, just don't work against me. Meaning that don't take my tax dollars and give it to this rich white man and his initiative when what he really could have done was already partner with a woman of color who was already out there doing the work as opposed to starting something. Cause here's the thing, we've been in the trenches for fucking ever. Look, I know a lot of people love Ryan Reynolds and his wife, Blake Lively, and I'm sure that they are wonderful people. But if it took the death of three black people to make you realize that, oh my God, we don't have any black people, indigenous people, Latinx people, and ableist people, sit your mother fucking ass down. Sit down. Why not use that privilege to help one of us that are already doing this. Why? You know we're out there because I met with the team. So after you pick this black woman's brain, don't do what you said you were going to do. And then the city of Los Angeles merges with them and that's where my tax dollars are going. I had a meltdown. I had a meltdown. I'm not going to, I, I lost it. And when I say I had a meltdown, it was me on my kitchen floor going, stop working against 
me. Stop it. Stop taking my tax dollars and giving it to this initiative that that, that is about PAs. Another pipeline. And I'm not saying we don't need pipelines, but for fuck's sake. So, you know, uh, I I lost it. I'm not going to lie. So when people are like, how can you do this so forth and so on? Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I'm sitting on my kitchen floor, which is literally what happened, in a corner like this. Like, I can't. I can't do this. I can't. Woo! Like, literally, I'm trying to figure out how to keep woke you solvent. I'm trying to figure out how to keep myself solvent. And you're taking what little money I do have in my tax dollars and giving it to these rich white people and their initiative. I get it. It's helping black and brown people, except I was doing it way before they jumped into this game. Londi Maduro was doing it way before they jumped into this game. Kimberly Batista, Caden Phoenix, we were all doing it way before they jumped into this game. What makes you think you know shit? What makes you think you know shit? And it took me probably about two weeks to literally climb out of it. Like it took me two weeks to just climb my way out of that dark ass tunnel because I was done. And when I mean that I was done, I was literally ready to, to shut down Woke You until the after the first of the year like I was I was I I was ready to just we're on vacation we're gone you know no more events no more initial nothing until after the first of the year and then I got emails that just started coming in start with eight just when are we having more events when are we doing this Cheryl we you've changed my life if it weren't for my membership we, we would be having a totally different conversation. Be like, oh, so Cheryl, why did you end up like, you know, sort of shuttering everything until after the first of the year and blah, 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 blah. It kept me fighting. It, 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 kept, it kept me fighting. I love that cyclical yeah. nature of like people telling you that you give them hope and when you need it, they give it back. Yeah. The power of community right there. And that is what I think a lot of people do not understand about the JTC list and Women of Color Unite. We are so much more than the list. So we exist on our own, on a private app where, uh, well, Mighty Network, and then we have our own private room. We have our own gig board. We have side hustles where people promote other things they're trying to do, especially during the pandemic. Like I bought shit from people. I bought hair ties. I bought body oils, I bought homemade loads, like all of that. Like we are so much more than this list. It, 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 and I don't know if it can ever be duplicated. Like I don't, there was no, nobody, nobody had done anything like what I was planning on doing. Now, Brown Girls Doc Mafia started six months before us. Women of Color Filmmakers started six months after us. But a lot of the way, ways that we were different where we weren't charging anything for, for any, anybody for anything, I realized very, very early on that lists are like phone books for white people in this business. They're like, we don't know what to do with this. It's like a phone book that used to show up on your doorstep. They're like, and? That the only thing that worked 
was getting them in the same room. And people were like, well, why? That is because diversity initiatives as they have stood the last 30 or 40 years have otherized people. And when you otherize them, you dehumanize them. So what happens when you get them in the room is people go, oh, all these diverse people, quote unquote, they just want the same thing I do. And also I'm a black woman, so I'm gonna feed you really well. Your belly gonna be full. I'm gonna give you some wine or some, or some cocktails. You're gonna turn to the, the person next to you and have a conversation. Uh, Gregory Zide, the white guy at our uh, organization, he calls it exclusion by familiarity. Didn't go to school with any, don't live near any, don't play golf with any. It's exclusion by familiarity. Hmm. When people ask me, do I think most people are racist and sexist? I'm like, well, sociologically speaking, you can't, <laughs> you can't grow up in this country and not be racist, sexist, ageist, ableist, colorist, and homophobic. You just can't. But you start picking that stuff out. And of course, if you are one of those groups, it's easier to, to pick that stuff out. But we all need to pick that stuff out. And considering that we are inundated per day with images from the media, like it's constant work. Look, I have fucked up. I don't, and the interesting thing is I don't ask anybody to do the work that I haven't done. You can go to my Twitter and see Teresa Giacino and I talking about it, right? Because I grew up black, Catholic, and originally Republican. So this is not the Republican party it is now. Please, 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 please. Uh, let's just get that all straight. So to say that I did not have ideas about the LGBTQIA plus community, would be a lie, right? And here's the interesting thing. Even though my mother was not homophobic or any of those things, school, yeah. school, there were times when she's like, mm -mm, where are you learning this bullshit from? School, other people, peers, things like that. So there's an entire Twitter thread where I talk about my journey because it is a constant one. Right. So even though I did not consider myself homophobic, like I figured I'd pick that shit out long ago, long ago. But then some interesting things started happening with Women of Color Unite, like non-binary people wanting to join, non-binary female, a female born, but also non-binary male born and so forth and so on. And even pushback I got from my own members and blah, blah, blah. And Teresa Giacino and I talked about it. she was the very first business development strategist in Women of Color Unite. She volunteered for two years right now. It's Manon Tarifa. And Teresa and I talk about it. There's a whole thing. And I was like, you were patient with my ass. And she says, that's because I knew you wanted to do better. And I just had to take you there. I do not do anything that I don't ask other people to do. And here's that. Even though with that, I thought I was good. Then I met Nile Ooh, transgender activist taught me some shit. Like she laid that stuff down. And so it is a constant journey. It's to understand where your weaknesses are, right? It's to understand the stuff that you got to pick up. Okay. I'm good when it comes to sexism. Good when it comes to racism. Colorism. Size is an fat phobia. No, ages, mm, ageism. Like uh, there were certain things I was really good at already. Because when you are part of that community, it's easier to pick that stuff out. And then there's stuff that I wasn't, right? Like I tell people all the time that, especially when it comes to transgender issues and, and 
and and gender and sex and blah 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 and all of that and figuring all of that out Nile I say all the times I learn at the knee of Nile <laughs> yeah and it's funny because I actually met her on the uh, social app clubhouse and we flew her out and put her up for our pride panel that we did with the Chicano Directors Initiative at Soho House. So, you know, Women of Color Unite has a partnership with Soho House. And so I try to have events with other people in other groups. I What I find interesting with working at Soho House, so I don't know if you know, but in Los Angeles right now, the waiting list for Soho House is five wow. years. So there are executives who can't get into oh Soho House. <laughs> So, and I was actually had a discussion with somebody about this last night. I said, here's what works. It's an even playing field because my members may not be able to get in or afford to get in, but a lot of these executives can't, still can't get in, can't afford to, are on a waiting list, have been rejected, blah, blah, blah. It's an even playing field at an elite venue, but it, it so evens out that playing field. Here's the thing. Still drinking my, eating my food and drinking my booze because it's a deal that we got, right? So it, it, there's, there's, there's this thing where now, ooh, everybody is equal. Everybody is equal because the woke you that organization only gets 0.5% of all grant. And so, like it, 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 there, there's something that happens at our events, which is why people have gotten hired on the spot. Huh? They've gotten hired on the spot. And so now we're, we're expanding, we're working on, I'm waiting to hear, working on an event uh, with Soho House New York City and one in the UK. Because uh, wow. it, it, there, there's something about an even playing field in an elite venue. Somebody, I was talking to somebody, they're like, ooh, that's good. I was yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, uh, well, so we've talked around start with eight. Do you mind? Sorry, Christina. I, was I just I realized like exact we've talked same thing. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so so give us the lowdown. What what is start with eight? Start with eight is the largest mentorship ever in the history of Hollywood. We used to do two rounds a year. That was a lot because I do give people a stipend for that. Like that's just that's that's too much and it, and it became too much because that money that all the people were like black lives matter we have this money blah 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 uh, that shit didn't last very long so I had to make a decision I couldn't keep asking people I'm, I'm very cognizant of how much sweat equity people put out so now it's once a year we launch on Juneteenth uh, but all year long we talk to people uh, mentors getting people to sign up for mentors, registering interests. So then when April rolls around, when we really put in our push for our mentors, and then June, we open up. And what we do is we match people. Volunteers spend hours, weeks going through and actually matching people. Here's the best part about it. There is no cost for our members and there's no trauma essays. You tell us what you need. Tell us what you need. What we ask the mentors to do is do one substantive thing for eight women of color. That's it. Tell us what you're willing to do. Some people is make a phone call. Some people it's read a script, uh, look at somebody's resume, an introduction, uh, whatever it is. And we match them with people who need that. And we have people who are mentors and mentees. 
because they get matched with, you know, what we call our in-betweeners, three to 10 years experience. We match them with people just getting into the industry. So as far as being mentors, and then a lot of times they'll get a mentor who is an EVP, SVP, so forth and so on to be able to level up the next step in their career. And normally people who have gone through the program uh, after, you know, because it's been two years, have come aboard and they're like, this was so amazing for me. What can I do? A lot of the in-betweeners, uh, what can I do to help younger, not even younger people, just people entering the industry? Because ageism is absolutely positively a problem mm-hmm. as well within our industry. So, and we know this because everything has to do with pipeline, high school, pipeline, high school, pipeline, college, pipeline. There's nothing wrong with pipeline, but we need that balance. And I tell people all the time, my mission, really what I concentrate on are the in-betweeners, the in-betweeners and women of color with disabilities. Do you know that Wokey was the very first uh, organization to put on a panel for women of color with disabilities in Hollywood? That was July of 2019. We were the very first one. Shout out to Fancy Cox. Uh, at the time she was working for Pearl Street, she used that Pearl Street credit card. We had it at the American Film Institute. They gave me the alumni discount for the Mark Goodson Theater. Do you know it was only a third full? It's one of the best panels we've ever had. One of the, everybody who was there was like, yeah, and it was one third full, one third. So interestingly enough, when I am on other panels with people from DE and all the various studios, this actually happened on Clubhouse. It was hosted by Denise Hewitt, scripted. She had a bunch of us. So, and I actually was one of my members who asked a question about disabilities. They gave a very pat answer. Uh, a lot of the people up there, I thought I thought it was a little on the dismissive side. So I called everybody out and I was like, does everybody on that, this is not a joke. I said, either you or someone in your company got an invitation to our event in July of 2019 and not a goddamn one of you or anybody in your company showed up. So let's just, let's call a spade a spade why I'm not very popular because I will call don't don't mm, don't dismiss one of my members and do not do not do it to a woman of color with a disability that is the easiest way people know that that's when I say I'm off in my corner don't pick on one of my most vulnerable members T Franklin the she has a disability she is she writes for comics like regarding uh, the LGBTQIA plus community and so forth and the marginalized people she's really really dope she got, well, a bunch of people, the rap that's run by Sharon Waxman. So there was a reporter who wrote about the new Batwoman, right? When the other woman left and it was a black woman and he had some not very great things to say and he tagged her, which is not good protocol. Like you're not, you don't do yeah. that. So a lot of people jumped on him for doing it. T was one of the people. Right now, T types like she talks and and it was a little bit of a stutter. He made fun of it. I saw it. So not only did I tag the rap and Sharon Waxman, I brought up the fact that months before that, Sharon Waxman had a white guy. This is really difficult for me to say because it gets to me every time. He wrote about the death of George Floyd, the young black woman who filmed it, comparing it to a Tarantino film. So here's the thing. 
I hit up every white woman I know in this industry. And I said, come get her. Come get Sharon Waxman. Come get her. I hit up Katie McGrath, that robot. I hit up Adrian Becker at Level Forward. I hit them all up. And I said, come get her. So she did end up taking down the article. But then behind a paywall, wrote an article about cancel culture. And look at the cancel culture. You mean because you had a white man write about this young black woman who really is a girl. She was like 19 comparing the footage of the death of George Floyd to a Tarantino movie. And yeah, you should be canceled for that shit. What the hell was wrong with you? Yes, yes. So here's the thing. I reminded everybody of that on Twitter and cursed at her. Don't you know she called me aggressive and blocked me? So here's the thing. Yeah, Sharon Waxman, I'm always going to be aggressive when you harm my people. Why don't you just knock it the fuck off? Stop having them write about Black people because they obviously can't do it. She did. She blocked me. And T loves to tell that story. T's like, I love Cheryl. You come for one of my members with a disability? Yeah, you're going to have to block me. You're going to have to block me because I'm going to curse you out. I'm going to lay you out. And I'm going to remind people of the harm you have done. Don't get that shit twisted. Don't make me come out of my corner. See, that's what I'm talking about. And yeah, I will call out Sharon Wax. I still do it. Like, I'll call out Sharon Waxman. I'll call out the rap, so forth and so on. I will tell you how she, like, Adrian Becker and I are going back and forth at level forward. Because she's like, we're trying to get a hold. We're trying. She's not getting it seriously. And I know she didn't get it because, yes, she took it down. That had to do with pressure. And then wrote an article about council culture. What, Sharon? You didn't think I'd see it? You didn't think somebody would send it to me? You didn't think I'd know the fuck you talking about me? Yeah. But you're going to lament about, oh, porn cancel culture. Do you understand the harm you caused? By letting that article go up? Okay. So yeah, I'll call her out. I'll, I'll name names. I'll every every day, every all the time. Because Brie, Christina, you know this. You know that I think that white women are part of our problem, right? Like yeah. part they're part of the problem. First of all, here's the thing: white women need to stay the fuck out of the DIAB space. Oh. You don't know enough. Stop trying to think you can run some shit. Stop making money off of our trauma because you were literally using black bodies as capital. Knock it the fuck off. Get out of the space. You don't have the capacity. Just get out of the space. Just stay in your motherfucking lane. I, I, I don't talk about Latinx issues, sometimes Afro-Latinx issues, but other. I'm, I'm going to support those who are already doing the work. So if I know how to stay in my lane, why don't you know how to stay in yours? And if you don't know how to stay in yours, then uh, then that's the problem. Because really what you're doing is, is whiteness again. Oh, see how that works? Stay out. It's not your lane. Don't do it. Like, don't do it. Because here's the thing. You know what it is. It's a cash grab. It's a cash grab. I don't really know what they're doing. It's a cash grab. 
Yeah. I think that's something that doesn't get brought up a lot in the conversations around like performativeness. Cause I've been in a lot of online spaces and social justice spaces. And like a lot of like younger people like to talk about performativeness just from an ethical perspective of like, it sucks when you're just doing it for performative reasons, just to get points. But I think that what doesn't get talked about enough and what you have been doing such a wonderful job in this podcast talking about is that like, there is a cost to performativeness, which is you are pulling focus, you are pulling funding, grant yeah. funding and otherwise capital funding away from people who are already established, already doing the work, and as you so put it, in their own fucking lane. And I think that that's something that people need to be talking about more. And and thank you for being here and being so eloquent and passionate about exactly the thing that more people should already be fucking talking about. Uh, it's because I'm really good at staying in my lane. Like, I, I, but I've always been really good at staying. So here's an interesting thing about being a production manager, line producer, and a producer. I've had all three. I can do all three jobs. But when I am line producing for a producer, when I'm production managing for another line producer, here's what I'm really good at. Staying in my motherfucking lane. I know how to stay in my lane. Right? When we launched as a DIAB consultancy, uh, which we don't get a lot of work doing, even though I have Dr. Kosulisane, who actually runs it. And I went out and got Dr. I used to run. Mm-hmm, she knows more than I do. I met her. I was like, yeah, you run this. Because uh, it'll take me a lifetime to catch up to the readings that she's had to do, because this is her area of expertise. Mine is filmmaking, remember? Uh, NYU and AFI. That's not hers, right? Like, But yeah, people don't, that, 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 the, the cost. And people always ask, why don't you guys do more work? I mean, obviously, we're very, very good at it. I have Diana Elizabeth Jordan as our disabled advocate. We now have Carissa Valencia and Dr. Jolie Proudfit as our Native American indigenous advocates. Like, I find people who know more shit than me. <laughs> I now have Nylee working in LGBTQIA plus and trans space. Like, I find people who know more shit than I do, who I can learn from, because I'm real comfortable and being uncomfortable. Let's talk about why we don't get more work. You want to know why? Because we we require that the C-suite be there. So we were actually up for a contract with Imagine. And I was like, so Ron Howard and and Brian Grace are going to be there, right? And they're like, well, no. I was like, then we're not doing it, because here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to let you use us. I'm not going to let you use us for a fucking marketing ploy. And then, of course, Ron Howard tweets out something that was problematic. And people, and I was like, see, I told you he needed the goddamn training. Like, he needed the goddamn training, Mm -hmm. too. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten roasted on Twitter if he had had that training. See how that works? Do you not see how that works anyway? They're awful worried about cancel culture (laughs) without learning how to not get canceled. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it really isn't. It only becomes cancel culture when you double down. Right. Yeah. So my mother taught me one really, a lot of really important lessons, but one in particular. Uh, I am the first person to say I'm sorry. I do not look and see, I always look and see what is my culpability and what has happened because I need to own it. I need to apologize for it. I need to make up for it because my mother said, when you don't, you literally hand over your power to other people. I'm not handing over my power to anybody else. Power exists in when to admit that you are wrong and when to make it up to people and to apologize. Just like you saw me go, Teresa, I'm so sorry I put you through that shit. Like, and I really, really was. Like, I was like, I was 
like I, I was like I'm so sorry like why could you how could you put up with me and that's when she said like you know I knew you really wanted to do better but it's it's apologizing it's going here's an entire thread of when I fucked up and how I had to reach back down and pick some shit like go uh, oh that's still there let, let me let me let me surgically remove that oh that's still there let me oh that that goes even further down than I thought let me cut that out like cancel culture is only about when you don't take responsibility when you don't make it up to the people that you have harmed yeah. right that's 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 it's about so our industry has existed on the lack of two things accountability and transparency so I'm completely transparent I'm a, completely accountable I don't look at other people, but I've never done that. Like that thing that my kindergarten teacher said to my mother, I don't do, I've never done that. I've never looked at a situation and felt and blamed other people. Like I look for my culpability within it. It could just be naivete, but how am I going to learn if I don't realize that it partly that, that my responsibility was my naivete? I didn't know enough. I didn't do my research. I didn't whatever I like I, I look at that to see what it is right and recently we had a situation and I was like and, and it all could have been handled if I had if I had just said hey let's have a meeting but I let people talk not my my staff the, the company we were working with but I let them talk me out of it they're like oh no it'll be fine Cheryl it'll be fine Cheryl it wasn't, it's going to be okay now. But when I went back to them, I said, this is partly my fault. I should have gone with my gut instincts because here's the thing. I was actually the oldest person in the room. I knew better. And then I look at it and I'm like, well, why didn't you X, Y, and Z, right? Like, why didn't you put it down? Because I was tired because it was easier than fighting for it. And it's like, yeah, Cheryl, but here's the thing. You were the most mature person in that room. You knew better. And that's not an excuse. And, and, and look, so whose fault is it really? Right? And it's like, okay, ultimately the buck stops with me. And that's just it. When you go, it's not that difficult. People are also just afraid to do it in front of other people, which is why Teresa and I did that exchange. Well, it didn't start off as why, but when I tagged her, I was like, this is a really good, not even exercise, but to, just to show people that I don't ask anybody to do shit that I'm not willing to do, that I I'm, I'm, was willing to do it on a public platform to talk about it, to talk about the stupid shit I said and ended up having to apologize for and, and, and wanting to do better. But even in wanting to do better, fighting against it, right? But I did that so that, here, 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 roadmap. Here's how you do it. Here, here's how you do it. Someone um, asked me, they're like, what about in 10 years when somebody looks at the name, like women of color unite and sees the women, right? For non-binary people, so forth and so on. I said, I'm just going to say what I've always said, which is when we started, yes, it, it, Okay, but look at what we've done, right? And as I said, charge it to my head and not my heart. Charge it to my head and not my heart. That I think as, as an organization, we did become more inclusive, right? 
and you can watch our journey. And I'm not afraid of pushback. I'm not afraid of somebody saying, ooh. And there was a point where we were looking at changing it. Remember when the people were doing uh, with an X or whatever. Mm -hmm. But every time I dug into it, I was looking at people were like, no, it can't be a Y because this is where it comes from. Or this, this X was problematic and so forth and so on. I was like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave the name as is. And then people can just watch, can clock our journey, can clock us from Women of Color Unite, accepting non-binary, male boy, female, this, that, so forth and so on. You can clock it. Just watch it because I stand on my journey. And maybe it can be a blueprint or a roadmap for other people, right? I'm not, I'm not going to run away from I'm not going to run away from mistakes that we have made. But my membership? They know. My, my, my membership knows. Even when I got pushback from our other membership who were like, well, the, people are going to take over. I'm like, you're going to take over. Have you met me? Like, what, what, what do you, who, who, who do you think they're going to take over? So, uh, yeah, that's what I say. And the other thing is I will always, just like Delany Peace and Vanessa, and Gregory, the white folks who are co-conspirators at Women of Color Unite will literally put themselves, their bodies between me and harm and other women of color and harm. I will always put myself between those more marginalized than me. I will, all, I will, I will continue to do that. Well, I can't think of a, a better way to end yeah. it than there. Cheryl, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you very much. I do want to make one quick point before yeah. I can go to my next one. And that was when I was talking about Brown Girls, Doc Mafia, and uh, Women of Color Filmmakers. We all do different things. Mm -hmm. And there was no blue blueprint because we don't charge people anything ever. We're more of a community sort of online in our own space. Like there was no blueprint. So I, I will own every goddamn mistake I've ever made. There was nobody else to show me a way. And even today, when people are like, let me help you raise money for a nonprofit, most of them have never, ever heard of that report, Pocket Change. Even today, when people are like, let us help you, you know, because everybody's out trying to, you know, they, they, want, they want money to help me raise money. I'm like, mm, how's that work? Okay. Uh, but even when I've met with people to that 15 minutes that they give you for free, I'm like, so how do you combat the report? Like, how do you work within the system? And I always talk about pocket change and not a goddamn one of them is read it. And I'm like, yeah, because mm -mm. if you haven't read that report, you can't help me. If, if we can't talk about how I need to navigate that 0.5, that that thing, like that systemic racism, sexism, you just want to give me the stuff that you think is going to work for everybody else, but it obviously doesn't work for us and so forth and so on. Yeah, get, get it, go. So there was, there is no blueprint. There, and I'm sure I will fall on my face time and time and time again because there is no other organization. I love Woke Youth because of the fact that we meet people where they are. I tell people all the time, I'm not going to teach you anything. You want to go learn, you go over to Women of Color Filmmakers. Londie, she does that. She does that well. But I always felt that belonging to a lot of the white female-led groups that always had classes for something, that it always gave this impression that we weren't ready. Mm. We ready. We're ready. We've, we've been 
ready. And lastly, I always tell people, go to take a look at our statistics because we were first ones to identify. It's a union problem. It's all of them. It's SAG, it's WGA, it's uh, DGA, it's IATI, it's T, it's all of them. It's every camera local. It's all of them. Go look at those statistics. See how many marginalized people belong to them, so forth and so on. It's, it's an antiquated way of getting into the unions. And there's one last thing. There is actually a backlash happening right now. So like any movement, there's always a backlash. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I mentioned Ron Howard earlier. So after the civil rights movement, did you guys see all the shows like Laverne and Shirley Happy Days? It was because that was part of the backlash, the return to simpler times. Right? Uh, right now, there's a backlash going on to diversity initiatives, to even like there's a backlash. And the first people being harmed right now are Black women on set. People being told, you know, they work a show that their union, that the hours aren't going to count towards unions. There, there, there's only a couple of black people, black women being on it, being called somebody else's name, like who don't look like you in any way, shape, and or form. Like there is so much backlash happening right now, and it always happens. It always starts with the most vulnerable, and it's not going to get called out until it happens to those with more power, well, mm, more privilege, right? It's kind of like the Me Too movement and how Toronto Burke had it for, what, 10 years before and it was originally designed for young Black girls who had been trigger warning, sexually assaulted, harassed, so forth and so on, specifically for young Black girls. And it was co-opted by white women in our industry because nobody gave a damn about young Black girls. And that's what I'm finding right now. Nobody seems to give a damn about Black women on set, but I'm working on something. I'm working on something. I can't talk about it yet, but I'm working on something. Like I said, don't make me come out of my corner. Well, good. I can't wait to see what that is. <laughs> I was going to say, we will absolutely have all your links in the episode description and, and on our social. So everybody uh, keep an eye out. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs who are our $10 supporters on Patreon. That's Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we break down what we went through in 2022. Be sure to tune in.